I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 169. So before we get to some camping shenanigans that I have a story to tell y'all about, you know, well, shenanigans, we had a listener reach out about a missing persons case that's pretty local to us. And so we just felt like it was something that we wanted to talk about a little bit. Brooke O is the creepster who reached out and she was talking about her friend, Caitlin White and Carrie Zelinka are looking for their sister. Her name is Erin Jenkins. And she was last seen in Mississippi with her boyfriend, David Oswalt. The place in Mississippi that she was last seen is Viden, V-A-I-D-E-N. She's been missing for six days now. And so her sisters are just trying to track her down, find her, and know that she's safe. So if any of these names ring a bell or if you have any information, contact the Viden Police Department at 662 662- Four six four five two six six. So before we get into some more serious stuff, Colby and I met his parents at this campground, like on this, well, I think it's called a creek, but it's really like a lake. I don't know. I don't know waterways. And you know me, I'm like a glamping kind of gal. Like I am mm-hmm. not like, I, we, am, we aren't doing tents. I'm not doing actual camping. <laughs> right. I could do, I could do a camper, which they had. And we were only there for the day. His poor parents had the luck of, well, us. Like, on the way there, this piece that goes on the septic tank, like, started coming off the camper. So, he got, like, blue-lighted by the cops. And so, he pulled over and he was like, oh, nice, cool. Part of this is coming off. Sweet. Patched that up. Well, and off the shitter, too. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Ugh. Shitter's full. Gets (laughs) there. As they're, like, pulling in to the campsite... A tire blows. So they just, you know, leave it and park. Then they get the camper parked, plug it all up or however that works. And Colby's there at this point because he's uh, brought the little boat down. And he's like, these lights are awfully dim. Huh. He looks and the lights won't run off the plug. Like you have to hook this battery up to it instead of it running off the plug. I don't know. Something about AC and outlet thingies. I don't know. Stuff I don't know. Then they go to... (laughs) This is where it cracked me up. They go to launch the boat. And when they get over there to do it, they realize that they forgot the boat key in the camper. So they call his mom and they say, Hey, look in the blue tackle box because that has the boat key. Well, she's like, which... Which tackle box? And they're like, the blue one. She's like, there's five tackle box here. They're like, the blue one. And so, like, you know what? Just put all the tackle boxes in the truck and bring them over here. And she's like, well, I don't know where you are. So his dad's like, stay there. I'll just drive over there and get it. He gets her to the campsite. She's nowhere to be found because she's going over to them. Meanwhile, she's completely lost. So she he has to go find her. Oh, my gosh. So then she takes the truck back. They get the boat launched, blah, 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 blah. His dad sits down to eat some of his bag of chips, and he notices, why is there smoke bellowing from my bag of chips? What? He caught on fire from the candle on the Oh, the my table. God. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> then his mom goes to the bedroom and is like, 
Um, why is the floor soaking wet? Oh my gosh. This end cap that was on this pipe had come off. And so water was like flowing in the things that had to shut the water off, like to the camper. So then his dad is like, oh, fine. Okay. And he's like, Colby, like he has to take a shower before he goes to bed. So he's going to go to the little shower stall down, you know, down the lane because can't use the camper shower. He goes to get in the truck. Where are the truck keys? Oh, my God. The blue tackle box. No, she lost them. (gasps) Yeah, she lost them. How? Who knows? So the next morning, Colby and I get there at the ass crack of dawn so we can go fishing. And um, they were hanging by the door the whole time. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) I'm stressed out from this story. So we changed the tire and all the things. And we ended up having a good time. But we worked our asses off there that day. I was like, camping is exhausting. (laughs) God, I've never worked so hard. (laughs) You caught some fish. We did. I meant specifically you. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Well, Colby did the things, the crickets on the thing, and then I just threw the pole, and then I brought it back in and then handed it to him, (laughs) and he did the rest. (laughs) I mean, that's what, I can't bait my own hook. No, there was a moment where I was like, I'm really tired of waiting on him, because, you know, he's trying to fish too, and then I was like, nope, can't do it, can't do it, can't do it, can't do it. Like, because I almost did it, and I was like, nope, can't do it, cannot. Like, I just sat there and looked at that bucket of crickets, and I was like, nope. Nope. I was like, man, this is like freaking, like, the Lampoon's vacation. It really is. His parents were supposed to stay, like, two more days. And that night when we left, they left. They're like, we're going home. It rained. Everything. We had a good time, though. Aside from, like, all the work. But we really did have fun. You know who else is having fun? Who? Patreoners! (laughs) Thank you so much, Mary from Texas. Sierra B. from Missouri. Julia G. from Missouri. Hannah R. from Massachusetts. Amanda W. from Tennessee. Linda K. from Norway. Radio name. Yep. D. D. from the UK. Audrey W. from Pennsylvania. Chiara O. from Italy. And Erica B. from Oklahoma. Well, this is a lot of international people. It really is. Thank y'all for... I don't know, finding us. And you know what? I feel like we've been having a lot of people from Missouri lately. So we see you, Missouri. Mm-hmm. Tell your neighbors. Do whatever you're doing. Keep doing it. But if you want a shout out like these amazing people got, head on over to patreon.com forward slash the APC podcast. The story I'm going to do this week, there were a lot of requests for this in the Facebook group. So I don't even know who, like, lots of people. So thank you, everybody who requested this, because this is a really good story. There have been a lot of podcasts that have done this story, but there's one journalist in particular named Azam Ahmed that is probably the most prolific, I guess you could say, journalist that that wrote an article um, for the New York Times that deserves the most credit, because I think he's the one that kind of broke the story, because he worked as like an immersion journalist in Mexico. There were a ton of other resources used for this story. You can always go to our website to find links to any of the references that we use for our stories. 
All right, picture it. We're going to go to San Fernando, Mexico. There's a mother by the name of Miriam Rodriguez, and she has three daughters, Annabelle, Louise, and Karen. So where they lived in San Fernando was a very rough part of Mexico. What made this area so dangerous was that it was on the path that led to the border to Texas. And so it was it's kind of where from what I understand where these roads kind of merge together and so it's an area that you have to pass through kind of to get to the border. And so that of course brings along with it the cartel. In particular this area was so bad with the violence from the cartel that most of the businesses in the area had actually shut down. Like the bars and the restaurants and all of that had closed because, again, the violence and such. Miriam and her family owned a store called Rodeo Boots. It was like a cowboy apparel shop. But during the week, they were so close to the border that Miriam would go work across the border as a nanny during the week in Texas. The Gulf Cartel is the cartel that had kind of taken a stronghold in the 90s in the area. Basically, how some some of the podcasts that I listened to and some of the YouTube videos I watched, kind of like Cartel for Dummies explained it to me, is that in the 90s, the Gulf Cartel had been hit up by some politicians in the area to help the politicians secure their foothold in the area. Well, the cartel did what they were asked to do, which gave them the advantage. So now they've got these politicians in their pockets so that they can say, okay, well, now we want to win the bids on all of these government jobs and all of this. So now they're getting more and more, they being the cartel, more and more power because now they've got these politicians that they help keep elected because they came to them first in power. So for a long time, it was just the Gulf cartel in the area that was doing, you know, cartel business. But then there was a group of uh, rebels, I guess you could say, but a faction of the Gulf cartel that broke away to become the Zetas. So they became their own cartel. So now you have the Gulf cartel and the Zetas. And now they are at war with one another. And when you have these two gangs at war with one another, one, you have casualties, of course. You also have to pay for it, like monetarily. And so how do you get money for it is you kidnap people for ransom. And they're not kidnapping people and holding them for ransom for millions and millions of dollars. They're not kidnapping, you know, a movie star's child or, you know, the Lindbergh baby. They're kidnapping multiple people for thousands of dollars instead of one person for millions. Well, that way they don't draw attention, like media-wise, as much. But even then, they're not going to because everybody's too scared. True. Especially, there's this area of the cartel that started as the um oh god i was gonna remember this because i heard this on a youtube video um but basically it was people who left 
the Mexican military kind of went AWOL, basically. And they were kind of the baddest of the bad. They were the ones that were the muscle. And so they were the ones that what you think of when you think of cartel violence, the beheadings, the hangings, the, you know, that, that serious violent deaths, the torture, the, you know, and so people are terrified of the cartel and it's, you know, we see it on movies. We don't have a fucking clue. Right. I mean, they're, they're literally living next door. You walk into a, a restaurant, you walk into the grocery store, you walk your kids to school you know, you can't trust anybody. You can't go to the cops because the cops are either terrified of them or they are them. Right. You can't go to the media because they're not, they're terrified of them or they are them. You can't go to literally anybody because they're terrified of them or they are them. And this isn't everywhere in Mexico, but here in this city and in this state in Mexico, it's run by the cartel. Two of the three kids of Miriam's had moved away to get away from the violence and all, but Karen was still at home to be able to work at the cowboy shop and finish school. On January 23rd, 2012, Karen leaves work from the Rodeo Boots store, which her family owned, and she's just driving along in the car, and she's about to merge into traffic when all of a sudden, two trucks pull up on both sides of her and stop, which forces her to stop. Men, armed to the teeth with guns, jump out and force her into their truck. And just like that, Karen has been kidnapped by the cartel. They didn't take her to one of the places, they call them like, the, I think the kitchens, which is basically places where they take victims to torture them and kill them. And they have like these outdoor brick ovens for cooking that they would literally cook the bodies in and set them on fire. I mean, like it's awful things. I mean, it's the fucking cartel. I mean, what you see on movies, like it's, I mean, sure, they fabricate some, but on the other hand, I mean, it's the fucking cartel, y'all, you know, but they didn't take her there. They took her back to her house. But nobody's there because Miriam's in Texas working as a nanny. And I'm not sure where Miriam's husband, the dad, was. I'm not sure where he was. But they put Karen on the living room floor. They had her gagged. They had her hands tied up. And as they're, I don't know, I don't even, I don't even know what they were doing. But all of a sudden, they get startled because there's a knock on the door. Well, when they open it to see who it is, it is Karen's uncle's mechanic he had just happened to stop by to fix the family's truck now that's some bad luck seriously so the kidnappers are like well what the fuck do we do now well let's take him too so that's when they decide okay it's time to leave the house once they leave they realize this mechanic isn't going to do anything for us who is he we don't know anything about his family we don't know how much money they have we literally know nothing about him he's just a dude like let's ditch him like he's he's just weighing us down like let's just ditch him so they just get rid of him like they don't kill him they just they like don't kill him no they just put him out that's how much people are scared of him that they don't even have to worry like they saw you know he saw his face uh-huh they're just like yeah we'll yep. get him later yep so they ditch the mechanic and they take karen god knows where of course it doesn't take the family long to realize that something's wrong and 
to know when Karen's not where she's supposed to be. You know, picture the car like in the middle of the road. I never saw anything in any of the articles that I saw, like what happened to the car. I know that's such like a small like Donna detail to think of, but it's like, no, really, like what the car's like in the middle of the road. You know, she was like about to merge into traffic when they surrounded her. And now the car's just sitting there in the middle of the road. Like, did they get in? It's one of them getting the car. You know, I know, again, I know that's such a small, insignificant detail, but I, I'm so hung up on that. Yeah. I mean, one should have got in and drove it away. You'd think because. But probably not. They just left it there. And then the police have to come and tow it away. But you'd think that they would because, one, they could scrap it. Mm-hmm. That's more money for them. Or. It gives them more time to do whatever they're doing. Yeah, to like get her to a secure location or whatever. Yeah. So, of course, the family knew what happened because this is not uncommon for the area. In fact, it is common. It is, unfortunately, the rule, not the exception. And finally, later that evening, the family gets a call asking for ransom money. Nothing really said that the family had money, but they owned a business and it sounded like they were one of the few people in the area that were able to keep a business up and running given the cartel. And so I think that they had probably more money than most people in the area. And even though the ransoms were low, air quotes around low, considering what we're used to hearing, like, oh, I need a million dollar ransom, you know, and they're asking for like a couple of thousand, even like a $5,000 ransom. That's still a shit ton of money. And I don't have $5,000 laying around for a ransom. But in the grand scheme of like, oh, you watched a movie and they wanted a million dollar ransom. Right. You know, but neither did Miriam. She didn't have that kind of money laying around either. She had to go to a bank and take out the money. And here's the thing. These kidnappings for ransoms are so common that the banks have special lines of credit offered to families just to pay ransoms. That's sad, but also I'm like, man, those banks know how to work it. Well, and you know, my favorite murder covered this. And when Karen said that, Georgia was like, well, are the banks in on it too? Because now they're getting, mm-hmm. you know, I was like, oh my God, I didn't even think about that, you know? Yeah. Because even if they do a lower interest rate, like, hey, we're helping you out. Like, we know your loved one's kidnapped. Um, They getting it. Yeah, they're still making money. Uh-huh. But also, this seems like a dog-eat-dog kind of thing, so they have to do what they have to do. Right. Well, and again, when you have so few businesses making it, it's like... They got to make the money somehow because it's not like this economy's booming and people just have all this money in the bank, you know? Right. So after they got the money from the bank, Karen's dad took the money that they had gotten to this area by a health clinic where they were told to, dropped it off, and then from there, he was told to go wait in a cemetery and that's where they were going to release Karen. He drops the money off, gets to the cemetery, and waits for hours and hours, and there's no Karen. And so finally, he decides to pack it in and go home without Karen. Did he leave the money there? No, he had already left the money at a separate location Um, by this health clinic, and then they said, now go wait to a cemetery. Okay. Right. Also, a cemetery? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, like, are they trying to tell you something there? 
the kidnappers call a few more times asking for more money and more money and more money. And of course, they just keep giving it because what are you going to do? Say no, you know, and and I think the first time they asked for a sign of life, you know, like, hey, let me talk to her. But I don't I never saw anything after that, like if they got that or not, or I never read anything in any of the articles or heard anything on any any of the anythings I listened to about them getting any sign of life after that or even asking for it. But again, what are they going to do? Say, no, we're not going to give you this money. I mean, they're still hoping beyond hope that she's still alive. And again, it's not, it's a lot of money, but it's like $1,000 here, $1,000 there. You know, it's not like $10 billion, you know, which is how this cartel does it. That's how they make this work because they're asking for smaller amounts of money from multiple people versus one large lump sum from kidnapping some serious, huge, rich, and powerful person, you know? So after basically weeks of back and forth with the kidnappers of a little more money, a little more money, a little more money, and no Karen, Miriam finally, because she was so distraught, I mean, who, who, what mother wouldn't be, that she was like, I'm going to ask for a meeting with a cartel. So she kind of sent some word through the grapevine. People know people know people. Hey, can you ask so-and-so to ask so-and-so to ask so-and-so? I want to meet with them. So she gets word back that they'll meet with her. So the Zetas set up a meeting with Miriam at this like local cafe, restaurant place. When she gets there, she sees that the guy, he's pretty young. You know, she's kind of sizing him up. She's like, okay, what's he look like? What's he wearing? What's he got going on? Who is he? She notices that he's got a walkie-talkie on him that, like, keeps, like, bloop, bloop, you know, going off, talking the whole time that they're there. He told her his name was Junior, which she knew, of course, was a street name, not his actual name. And when they sat down, he said, look, the Zetas don't have Karen. We're not the ones who kidnapped her. We don't have her. But he says, but look, if you give me $2,000, I'll help you look. She knows. She's like, I know it's bullshit, but what am I going to do? I'm going to tell this cartel guy no and say, no, don't help me find my daughter. What if it's a bluff? What if it's not? I mean, what are your options? Turn this person down who may be able to help you find your daughter or turn this person down who might kill you. You know what I mean? What the fuck are your options? And not even just those options, but you don't have a lot to go on to find your daughter by yourself. Exactly. So you, you're you right. You either pay knowing it's bullshit, but you are still alive, or you pay and it's not bullshit and you have help. Exactly. Well, towards the end of their meeting, someone on the other end of the walkie-talkie slipped up and called him Sama. And she was like, that, Remember that. Yeah. That's his fucking name. That ain't his street name. Mm-hmm. That's his real fucking name. Mental note. That was me on the other side. That was me. <laughs> but you know that guy lost his life probably. Like, no, that guy didn't notice either. Nobody, oh, noticed. nobody noticed. He didn't notice. Nobody fucking noticed. Junior slash Sama didn't notice and neither did the people on the walkie talkie. Miriam is the only one that noticed. Damn. So she gives in the money, and about a week later, 
he stops answering the phone. And of course, there's more people that call asking for money, $500 here, $1,000 there. Who knows how much money they've paid at this point? I'm going to guess upwards of $10,000. At this point, it's literally destroying Miriam. She and her husband have separated now. She's moved in with her daughter, Azalea. She's depressed. I mean, it's destroying her. Yeah, because they don't even know if she's alive. There's nothing. And and they've given all this money, and now she's, she's separated from her husband because she can't. I mean, I don't want to even want to say this because this isn't the word I want to use, but just she can't keep it together. You know, she's so depressed and yeah, and not in the, the so keep it together is not the word I want to use because it's literally she's you can't help it with that. Yes, it's not a depression. I know. Trust me, I get it. I take medicine for it every fucking day. I understand it's not a pull yourself up by the bootstraps kind of thing. I understand that. So. That's not what I mean by I say she can't keep it together, but she literally can't keep it together because she is so depressed. Yeah. I mean, and it's the, it's really two types of people, and that's, we see a lot of marriages that are very strained when something like this happens mm-hmm. because it's kind of like that fight or flight. There's someone usually who does become consumed with holding out hope, trying to find the person, whatever the other one it's there to be the rock for the other person and to be more, I hate to say realistic, but realistic, but that never works. You know, right. it's, it's hard for both people. Because neither one can move on because of the other. You know, the one holding out hope can't continue to hold out hope because you have the one being the more quote unquote realistic one. Right. And the quote unquote realistic one can't move forward because of the one holding out hope and want to keep the room the same and not move or not, you know. That's so sad. So at this point, we're two years into Karen going missing. And Miriam one morning comes downstairs and she tells her daughter, Azalea, she says, you know what? Karen's never coming back. She's dead. Like, I know she's dead. And she tells Azalea that she is not going to rest until she finds every single person who had taken Karen. She says she's going to hunt them down one by one until the day she dies. Okay, Liam Neeson. Exactly. And Azalea says from that day forward, Miriam was a different person. It was like, a light switch flipped mm-hmm. and she was a woman with a mission. So where to start? She knew the name Sama and she had, she knew what he looked like. She also had the uncle's mechanic who had been kidnapped with Karen, you know, for that brief time. Miriam had had him write everything down so that he had a fresh memory of, you know, what people looked like, how many people were there, how many guns were, you know, all the things while he had a fresh memory. And then after she had the meeting with Sama, she went back to him and was like, okay, I met this guy. This is what he looked like. Do you recognize this name? Like the, you know, junior, does this guy sound familiar? And he was like, yeah, he was one of the ones that was there. So she's like, okay, we're on to something. So she starts scouring Facebook because look, Even the cartel has Facebook. (laughs) Sad but true. She is going serious amateur sleuth, armchair detective, all the things. And she is looking in friends among friends among friends. 
pictures tagged by friends among friends. I mean, like, she is going down rabbit holes beyond rabbit holes. So that's what you do when you find a random video on Facebook and you have to know what they're talking about. Yes. This girl really does. Yes. This girl really does. (laughs) Well, if someone's in a picture and I have to know how they know somebody, (laughs) and then it gets me back to this next person that has this next person that has this next person that has this next person, well, this is how Miriam did it. So she is digging in all the pictures on Facebook. And one morning, she's digging through, and she finally spots him. Tagged in the picture was blah, blah, blah with Sama. But it's not like like tagged, like, oh, let me link it to his page. Just like right. the name, right? Mm-hmm. And she's like, that's him. And he's with a girl. And let me see. She's got on an ice cream shop uniform. I know where that ice cream shop is. All right. Let me go check that out. And so the ice cream shop is like two hours away in Ciudad, Victoria. So she goes to this ice cream shop and basically stalks it, does a stakeout on this ice cream shop for weeks. She knows this woman's work hours. She knows everything. And she's just waiting for Sama to show up. And then one day he finally does. And she's like, holy fuck, it's him. He's here. Okay, now, shit, now, fuck, what do I do? Right. He's going to recognize me. Now, like, what the fuck do I do? So she's like, okay, I'm just going to follow him. I'm going to see where they go. And they went home. So now she's like, okay, I know where he lives. But it's not enough to take to police. Like, what's she going to do? Like, okay, like, he lives in this building. His name's Sama. Don't know his last name. But, uh... Pretty sure he's one that kidnapped my daughter. You know, like she didn't she didn't have right. anything, right? You know, she had some, but she didn't have she didn't have anything. And again, she's like, Sama will recognize me. So what am I going to do? Well, what she did was she went home, she chopped off her hair, and she dyed it bright ass red. And she had an old uniform from when she worked for the government. She worked for the health ministry. And or the Ministry of Health or whatever it's called there. And so her ID, like she looked very official, even though her job was not like what she's pretending to do. Mm -hmm. But she gets her little clipboard and her old uniform with her new hair. And she goes to his like apartment complex pretending to be a poll taker to be like, so, um, I'm here from the Census Bureau. Uh, what's your name? How many people live here? You know, how's everything going kind of thing? Like, and people just told her stuff. And so she was able to get his first and last name and like the official address and all this information because people told her because they're like, oh, she works for this government agency. Like, mm-hmm. oh, she's got like a legit ID. Like, okay, like, let me tell you all the things, right? And so she starts asking some people like about him and, you know, kind of starts getting some, trying to get some information as much as she can about him, which I'm sorry, that is fucking genius. Yeah. I was like, damn, that is fucking smart. So she takes the information that she got to the local government, and they're like, ma'am, no, we're not touching this. Right. 
Uh-uh. So then she goes to the state level, and the same thing. They're like, no. So she goes to the federal level. She finally finds a detective with the federales who is willing to listen to her. But, like, here's the thing. He's still remaining anonymous to wow. this day. Yeah. That tells you anything. Yeah. We still don't know who he is. So when Miriam gets to this meeting with him, she has, like, a fucking dossier on Sama. I mean, she knows where he lives, who he is, all these Facebook pictures with him, with other people, with his girlfriend that he lived with and her freaking work hours at the Tasty Freeze and, the, you know, <laughs> yeah. all the things that, you know. And, I mean, he said, like, when she pulled out her all of her files, he was like, she's done more work than most of my detectives would do. And she's done it on her fucking own. Yeah. He's like, I have to help her. Because... Everybody had shut her down. Every single person had told her no. And she's working as hard as she can to try to get some justice for her daughter. And he's like, I'm going to help her. Well, when they go to arrest Sama from all of her evidence, he's gone. He had gotten wind that somebody was around there Mm -hmm. asking about him. So he's gone. So she's like, fuck. You know, of course. Well... She's not giving up. You know, she's still looking through Facebook, like, trying to find people who are connected to, you know, I, like, picture, like, a murder board with, like, strings of people. She's, like, trying to figure out who knows who, who's dating who, who's went to high school with who. You know, she's trying to make all these connections. Then, September 15th, 2014. So, remember, Miriam has a son named Luis. So, he lives in Ciudad, Victoria, which is, again, like two hours away from where Miriam lives. And he owns a shop there. And he's getting ready to close it down. And as he's getting ready to close it down, there's one more customer that's kind of hanging around in there. And he's like, damn, who is that? Son of a bitch, it's Sama. Oh, my gosh. And so he's just like kind of watching, just wa- you know, watching what he's doing. Like, mama, Sama's in here. I'm going to need you to get your ass here. You know, call the police and get your fucking ass here. Because he's here. And so he closed the shop really quickly and just kind of followed Sama to see where he went so that they were always right behind him and knew. And so police arrived and they arrested him. Well, look, she knew with his name being Junior and him looking so young. She knew that he was a low man on the totem pole. Right. He was young. Because, again, the Zetas, they're not going to send some high-up person to fucking meet Miriam at this right. thing. You know what I mean? So, once police arrested him, he started talking. Cause he's, of course. He's, you know, he's green. He don't, you know, he's he started talking. And so, he told police... About a guy named Christian Jose Zapata Gonzalez. I'm trying hard with these names, guys. I can't get over that the town sounds like a note from Victoria. See you, Dad. Victoria. (laughs) So please go pick up Christian. And he's young as well. Just turned 18. And, you know, like they say, he's even young by cartel standards. When they bring him in for questioning, Miriam's watching. Some stuff made it sound like she was, like, literally in the room 
while they were questioning him. But some stuff made it sound like she was like kind of watching behind like the two way mirror. That's what I was picturing. You know? But again, some stuff was like, wait, she's like in the room? You know, I don't know. Anyway, but again, from what I gather, she's like behind the glass. Well, because I don't think that she would want them to know who she is right now either. True. Well, while he's being questioned, just again, because of his age, he's like freaking out. And he's like, I just, I just want to see my mom. I'm hungry. Like, you know, he's a kid that's done bad, bad shit and is freaking out. Well, in true Steve Elwin form, your daddy, uh, because the first thing I listened to, again, made it sound like she was in the room. And then when he said he was hungry, it literally said she reached in her purse and pulled out a piece of fried chicken. And I was like, if that is not Donna's fucking daddy, if that is, I've literally, he's, I've seen him pull out fried chicken from his pocket in his shirt. Well, it's gizzards. Gizzards. But yes. I mean, I've seen him do fried chicken too. Really? Like a chicken leg? Really? I swear I've seen him do a chicken leg. That's hilarious. I I swear a chicken leg. I wouldn't put it past him, but gizzards is his go-to in the pocket. Maybe it was gizzards, but I swear it was chicken leg. But I was like, if that is not fucking Steve Elwin. Like legit, at the police station, he had it in his pocket and ate it. But then some stuff said she like went down to the corner store and got some fried chicken and a Coke, brought it back to him and gave it to him. And the police are like, what the hell? This guy kidnapped your daughter that we're like 99.9% sure is dead at this point. Like, how can you give him this food? And she's like, he's still a child. And no matter what he did, I'm still a mother. And because she showed him that empathy, he cracked. And he was like, okay, I'll show you where our, basically our killing ranch is. So he took police to the ranch where they would take their kidnapping victims. So the police and Miriam go to this ranch where Christian tells them that they took the victims that they would kidnap. And it is a very gruesome sight. It has mattresses soiled where people had been like kept on mattresses and for God knows how long that they had urinated Mm. and defecated on really dirty like tabletops. There were like a noose hanging in a tree just bones and teeth in a, like, piles. Ooh. But Miriam found a stack of just personal belongings that they had gotten from people that they just, like, dumped, you know, as, as they were killing them. And she found a scarf and a seat cushion from the truck that she knew belonged to Karen. Like, she was like, I bought that scarf for her. For Christmas, like I know that's her scarf, and that's the cushion from our truck. Which I'm not sure what how the cushion came. Like, like it's like a like a a cushion they put in there. You know, not like oh they took the whole actual seat. But I'm like, how did that come with there? But whatever. If you remember before how we talked about they would incinerate the bodies, it's mostly ash with some bone fragments, and they did some forensic analysis. And at first they were like, her bones are not here. And she's like, 
I fucking know they are. Like, why else would her scarf and this seat cushion be here? Like, they wouldn't just have her stuff here if she wasn't here. Right. Like, where else would she be? Because while I'm sure that they do have some victims of their kidnapping that they sell for human trafficking, the bulk of them, they just, this is, sound, this is terrible, but they just kill. And so she was like, look, do it again. Do it fucking again because I know that she's here. And I love that, you know, that main article by the journalist that I told you that was in um, the New York Times. I love that it was like most officials held like a grudging respect for her despite complaining about her foul language. (laughs) (laughs) That just made me giggle so hard. So they did check again because, you know, a grudging respect for her. And it wasn't that instance, you know, I'm kind of jumping ahead. And it was, you know, I think it ended up taking like a year. They did check again. And, you know, because they're sifting through all of that. But they did find a piece of femur that belonged to Karen. Mm, Gosh. And so at the very least, Miriam Miriam and her whole family, not just Miriam, but her husband and, and the other kids, got some closure that, yes, Karen was killed. On her way back from the ranch, I heard this story two different ways. That, one, she stopped and she saw this girl and this happened. And then I also heard it that she remembered this encounter at this point. So, either way, an encounter happened with Miriam and a young local girl by the name of Elvia Ulisa Betancourt. Well, Miriam knew Elvia pretty well because she would give Elvia Karen's old clothes. You know, it's a small community. And so, you know, everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows a rapist business. Everybody certainly fucking knows about Karen's kidnapping. Right. And so she asked Elvia, did you hear what happened to Karen? And Elvia was like, no, I hadn't heard. And it kind of dawned on Miriam that... She had to have known. Right. Like, it's impossible for her to have not known. Like, literally everybody knew. And that she was by herself just hanging out at this barbecue place that's pretty close. Like, basically at the entrance of the dirt road going towards that ranch. Mm -hmm. And she was literally by herself there just drinking a soda. Right. So it's like, wait. She felt way too comfortable. Yeah, but she was like, wait, 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 wait. She had to have known something. And was she sitting at that restaurant? Was she was she watching the ranch? Ooh. Was she, like, watching to see if police co- Like, is she their lookout? Is she involved in this? And so the more she thought about it, she started getting pissed, you know? She goes back, you know, she goes home and she's like, Facebook.com, like, let me look up. And then she starts looking at pictures, and she's like, okay, 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 okay. Let me see. And then she's like, motherfuck. Elvia's boyfriend is one of the goddamn kidnappers. Oh, my gosh. So he's already in prison. So Miriam created basically like a hit list. And I think that's actually what she called it, a hit list of the people that were involved in the crime. And if they were already dead or... Which is sad, but true, because they're cartel members. If they're already dead or in prison for something else, it's like, okay, check, fuck you. But 
if they weren't, then those are obviously who she decided to go after. Mm -hmm. Well, he was in jail for an unrelated crime. So she's like, okay, check him off the list. Like, I'm not studying him, right? Right. So she didn't even, like, put two and four together of that because she wasn't studying him. So she starts staking out the prison to see when Elvia is going to come visit. She starts getting getting more information and gets the police involved, and they come and arrest her as well. Because it's not like, oh, she just dated him. No. The ransom calls came from her house. No. Yes. It's like, Elvia. Wow. You are wearing her old clothes. Wow. That family took care of you. Yeah. How fucking dare you? There was another member of the cartel, Enrique Uel Rubio Flores. He had moved to Aldama and he had gotten out of the cartel and he was living on the straight and narrow as a quote born again Christian, going to church, doing his thing. Miriam Strait, look, she's fucking badass. She became good friends with Enrique's grandmother. To get all the dirt on him. Dang. And she spilled the tea. The grandma was like, yeah, you know, he's had a trouble, but he's doing better. He's going to church. And look, he's going over to church at the local Baptist church. You know, making that up. But yeah. going over to church at the blah, blah, blah. And this is what he's doing and blah, 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 blah. You know, spilled all the tea. So Miriam starts staking it out to see, like, when he comes to church. Again, gathering all her intel before she do boop, 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 calls her agent to say, okay, this is where he is. This is what he's doing. Come get him. So they arrested him at the church. And how about all the like parishioners at the church were like, he's done, he's changed his life. Like have, you should have some mercy on him. Have some compassion, have some mercy. And she's like, to them, she says, where was his compassion when they killed my daughter? Right. Good for fucking her. Yes. Just because he's quote-unquote changed his life doesn't mean he doesn't have to face the consequences for what he's done. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't erase his past when he hasn't paid the dues. Like, he hasn't... Exactly. ...done anything for that. I mean, not to bring up the Golden State Killer again, but uh, that's like if people said, hey, have some compassion. He hasn't killed anyone in, like, 20 years. Yeah. Um... He still did, and never he never paid for that. Yeah, have uh have some compassion. He's in a wheelchair, right? No, well, first of all, he's faking it <laughs> yes. so that you will have compassion for him. But ignore what he looks like right now, and remember the monster that he was because he still fucking is. Yes. So then. There was another guy that she found out had left the cartel and was selling flowers along the Texas border. Well, at this point, there is a Facebook group that she started. It's like a collective of locals that kind of give each other information and that kind of thing. And so she found out that through the grapevine that he is working on the border selling flowers that day. So without showering, Throws on a baseball cap, leaves her pajamas on, puts on a trench coat, sticks a gun in her purse, and heads to the border to find this guy. She's looking 
I've heard two different stories. She was looking through all of the flower carts, but he was selling sunglasses that day. But I also heard that she knew he was selling sunglasses that day. But either way, she got a little too close and he saw her. And he fucking took off running. But at this point, Miriam's like 56 years old. But she, zero fucks given. 50's a new 30. Fucking takes off running behind him. Chases him down. Like, I picture, like, the boardwalk. I don't know if that's what this border looks like. <laughs> but that's what I'm picturing. Like, vendors selling flowers yeah. and sunglasses and shit on a boardwalk. Fucking takes off. Chases him. Grabs his shirt. Tackles him. Has her gun. Puts it in his back. And is like, if you fucking run, I will shoot you. And Miriam just sits on him with her gun for an hour until police get there and arrest him. Wow. Which we do not recommend. It's no. very, very dangerous. Yes. I mean, all this is very, very dangerous. But, but yeah, fucking just sits there on him for an hour waiting for police to get there. Then she finds out that... One of the last people on her list was this woman who had left the cartel and was now working in Ciudad Victoria as a live-in nanny for a family. Wow. So Miriam hops in her car, drives the two hours, and she stakes out the house just waiting on her to leave. She runs her battery down because she sits there in her car listening to her radio. Luis has to come and like sneak up, jump her car off without anybody seeing him because he she like ran the battery down. She's like peeing in a cup in the car because she doesn't want to leave because Shit. she doesn't want to miss them coming and going from the house so that she can catch this woman. Well, finally she gets everything she needs. She calls police and they get there to arrest her. Well, Miriam gets so excited and she's running towards police arresting her that she trips and fractures her foot. So she's wearing a cast and on crutches. Broken foot and all, at least she got her girl. About a month later at the prison in Ciudad, Victoria, two dozen inmates escape. And Miriam calls the police and she's like, we need protection because she knows that two of the inmates that got out were inmates that she put there. Yeah. And she says, we need protection. And they say, okay, well, we'll send, you know, periodic patrols by your house. She needs to be in witness protection before this anyway. Well, at this point, though, the people in the community were relying on her to help them with their family members who were missing. And, you know, she had kind of become Sorry about this. You. I gotta live. Yeah. She had kind of become this, I don't know what you want to call it, but, you know, leader in the community. Mm -hmm. Well, on Mother's Day of 2017, Miriam had just gotten home late that night. It was like 1021 at night. She pulled up in the driveway. She gets out. And as she gets out, a white Nissan truck carrying the men who had gotten out of prison pulled up behind her and fired 13 rounds oh into Miriam. Oh, my God. Oh. When her husband came out, he found her lying face down 
in the driveway with her hand in her purse reaching for her gun. Wow. Her death rocked the community because, you know, she had been such a voice for them against the cartel that they feared so much. And then she met the fate that they knew that they would if they stood up against them. And so it just, it just made, it just destroyed the community. A few months after Miriam's murder, the two were arrested. One of them was killed in the gunfight, but I never found their names or anything. Almost a month after Miriam's death, the police in Veracruz, using information that Miriam had given them, found a woman that Miriam had been trying, basically the last woman that Miriam was trying to capture, who was working in Veracruz as a taxi driver while she was raising her son. This is the woman that they say was so horrible to Karen, like when she was kidnapped, that Mm. she would hang her up and like a punching bag and just beat her. Oh my gosh. And just a month after Miriam was murdered, police found her and arrested her. Wow. So in total, Miriam got 10 people arrested in connection with Karen's kidnapping and murder. Wow. And although she was murdered herself, you know, all the interviews and all the quotes from her, she knew that that was her fate. And she seemed to be okay with it because she wanted justice for Karen and she was okay risking her life to ensure that those people paid the price for it. Yeah. I just think that it's so poignant that right there at the end, she got all of her people and they killed her on Mother's Day. Wow. Yeah. But that's the story of Miriam Rodriguez and how she became this vigilante that took on the cartel in Mexico and hunted down the people who kidnapped and murdered her daughter. Wow. I remember seeing that going around. It's a powerful story, which is, I mean, it's similar to the movie Taken, except for she didn't kill him. You know, she didn't kill anybody. Right. I hate that she died, but I feel like those, like, two years before she was on her, like, justice mission, like, she wasn't living anyway, and this gave her that, she had a mission, she did it, and you you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. she... I don't know. And also, she was reaching for her gun in her purse. Like, she went down, but still fighting. Mm -hmm. Luis has taken over her cause in a different direction where he helps the families, like, with more coping and that sort of thing versus, like, hunting down the people who did it. So their neighborhood coalition still exists, just in a slightly different way. Yeah, a more safe way, too. Yeah, which I can totally respect because, I mean... You know, he moved out of the area for safety and he's, you know, he doesn't want to risk his life, which is respectable. I mean, yeah, that's okay. Even though it's a sad story, it's a powerful story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wasn't expecting her to die. Me either. But that's real life. Mm -hmm. And it's the cartel. Like, again, it's. You know, it's this, like, movie concept, the cartel. But no, it's real. You know, it's scary. It's 
these are people who will hunt you down and yeah. you know they own the government in in certain areas not all the places and it's not you know it's not everywhere but it's where they do they do right and it's freaking scary in it i can imagine that it feels like there's no fucking way out and so miriam just did the best that she could to avenge the death of her daughter and to cope with the way that she could I mean, obviously, we don't recommend vigilante justice, but she did the best that she could. Yeah. All right. Well, mine was not recommended, but I wanted to celebrate Pride Month paranormal style. So I scoured the web, and what I found was a man named Jesse Shepard. He was born Benjamin Henry Jesse Francis Shepard on September 18th, 1848. Well, that's my sister's birthday. I know. I was like, oh. Just a little early. And he sounds very fancy with his name. Right. His name, his names. Right. (laughs) Well, he was fancy because he was born in Birkenhead, England, but his family moved to Illinois when he was six months old. He grew up in the States, but he did become a traveler. And something that helped him travel was his musical talent. He began studying piano when his family moved to Niagara Falls in New York. At this time, he was around 12 years old. He was never formally taught, just started to play and found that he could. It wasn't always good. It wasn't like he touched the keys for the first time and it was like a symphonic sound, but it soon became that way. When Jesse was 21, he was ready to leave the States and travel, and his first place was Paris. He was a hit. His musical talent wasn't the only thing that made him stand out. Jesse was tall and considered handsome. People often noted his large hands and feet. Oh, you know what they say. He was destined to play the piano. Well, you know, I was going to (laughs) say. I was going to say big shoes, big gloves. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. All I could picture is Hamburger Helper with that. Anyway, he didn't even have feet. But... The, the hamburger helper guy. I was yeah. like, that's a detail you left out. <laughs> oh, good. Well, they also said he had charisma and charm that just oozed out of him in the most poetic way. Like I said, he studied piano, but not formally. But he also studied spiritualism, which was huge. We know all the rage in the 19th century. And some of the reason was because a spirit named Rachel came to him during a performance And helped him find his voice to sing. And sing he did. So in the salons of Paris, he would now wow audiences with his playing that seemed to never be from memory. Just improvised. And he could sing every part from bass to soprano. So he definitely became a well-known performer in Europe. All around Europe. He played for various people, but most notable are the noble. He performed for Alexander Dumas. Dumas? That as a silent, right? It's He's French. Mm-hmm. I would think. Well, all I can think about is dumbass or whatever on Shawshank Redemption. Yes. That's all I can think about. But he is the French author who wrote The Count of Monte Cristo and The Three Musketeers. Well, Alexander was enamored by Jesse's talent. 
He told Jesse that with his gifts, he would find all the doors open before him. And Alexander was correct. Jesse traveled in 1871 to St. Petersburg, where he played for the Tsar of Russia. This was a pivotal performance for Jesse because it was here that he met a general who was also into mysticism and spiritualism. This man taught Jesse how to perfect his craft and hold seances. And this lit a fire within Jesse. He returned to the States in 1874, traveled to Vermont to meet a famous medium named Madame Blavatsky, and she helped him to further understand his gifts and celebrate them. And so Jesse had really grown by this time, and he performed at the home of a renowned medium named H.H. Crocker. And it stated that in this seance, Jesse was contacted by Egyptian spirits, and through his performance, they could hear the spirits because Jesse sang in two voices because of his range that he could go. This wasn't the only spirits to contact Jesse. He would play and channel the greats, such as Mozart, Beethoven, Chopin, all the things, and he never played by sheet music. It was just flowing out of him, like someone whispering in his ear or articulating his fingers for him. Jesse went on to be invited to sing the lead parts in a special mass in Notre Dame. He also performed for the Queen of Denmark, the Queen of Hanover, like the Prince of Wales, all like name a royal, he performed for him. And remember how I said Jesse was handsome and people just noticed him in a room? Well, it only got harder to ignore his presence because Jesse's personality and beliefs were easily seen in his appearance. Over the years, his image evolved, as did his talents. Jesse would wear heavy rouge on his cheeks and his lips. He would darken around his eyes. And he sported a mustache that he would heavily wax into any particular style. And then he dyed his style of stash bright colors such as orange. And so I mean, he stood out. And then his wardrobe became even more decadent, thanks to the wealthy patrons he performed for. You just said styled stash. Can we talk about that? (laughs) They would give him expensive jewels, such as his favorite ruby ring he would wear. And the ruby was surrounded by glittering diamonds, which you could see twinkle as he stroked the keys. And he would always wear multiple rings, you know, so he was just decked out. He was also given a fur coat that was made from 3,000 squirrels, even though it hurts my heart. Good God. I know. 3,000 squirrels. That's so much. And that hurts my heart because you know I have a fondness for them. You do. You love a damn squirrel. I do. And I was like, 3,000. That's a lot of fucking squirrels. (sighs) How many squirrels had to die to make your coat, sir? Only 2,000. Poof. (laughs) Oh, God. A loser. (laughs) So he really looked the part that society had labeled him with, either eclectic musical genius or mystical madman. No matter what you thought of him, you wanted to know him. You wanted to be in his presence, and you wanted to see him perform with the spirits. There was this report about a seance he held in Paris in 1893. In it, it said that when the first few chords were played, 
flickering lights appeared at every corner of the room. And the second piece that Jesse played was this rhapsody for four hands. So basically a duet. Um, Bohemian? <laughs> no. But Jesse played it all himself. And the writer went on to say that in the audience were musicians who had heard the greatest pianist in Europe, but everyone agreed that they had never heard such truly supernatural executions. So let's talk about when Jesse met Lawrence W. Tonner in 1885. Lawrence became Jesse's secretary and some would say partner. But since homosexuality was such a fragile topic in society, they were just friends who spent time together, you know? But they were together for 40 years. And nothing ever stated that Jesse and Lawrence were in a relationship. And I know that people can be best friends and not be in a relationship for a long time. I know. Uh, hello. I know. However, there was just a different kind of love there with them. And... Again, homosexuality was so taboo back then, and Jesse was very private about his personal life. So no one really knows the truth, but everyone speculates, including me. But I do know that later in life, Lawrence took care of Jesse financially, you know, like when everything, like they were together until their dying days. They were literally Jack and Will from Will and Grace. Like, they took care yes. of each other. You know, like, yes. even if they were straight or gay, like, they took yes, care of each other. You exactly. Know? And if they were a couple, I really hate that they can never confirm their relationship. You know, in a mm -hmm. in a society that he could believe in spiritualism and do seances and everything else, but he still couldn't be his true self. That just speaks volumes. Mm-hmm. Now, Lawrence was an amazing man as well. He was born into Danish royalty in Denmark in 1861. In 1870, he relocated to the States and became a citizen in 1875. He held a lot of different offices for Herbert Hoover, you know, the president. Mm -hmm. He was an interpreter, a French teacher, press secretary, among a lot of other titles for him. Damn. But when he met Jesse, he settled into the shadows and let Jesse be Jesse. And like I said, later in life, when Jesse fell on hard times, he financially cared for him and never left his side. The two traveled together and they settled in San Diego, California. And Jesse had friends that he met through shared beliefs in spiritualism. And they were known as the High Brothers. That was their last name. Watermelon sugar. Hi. Why? Because I knew that you'd say that. Ugh. Well, they wanted to attract a certain crowd in the land that they had just purchased. So they offered to build Jesse a house, basically. And this house was grand. And Jesse called it the Villa Montezuma. That was a nod to the ship that he immigrated on with his family called the Montezuma. Jesse and Lawrence often opened their home to guests to be dazzled by Jesse's performances and there was this one New Year's Eve where Jesse basically brought the house down with his amazing performance. He performed classics and one composition of his own that was called the Grand Egyptian March. In this piece, Jesse is playing basically enemies marching towards each other to war. 
But just with him, his voice, and his piano, he could simulate the sounds of trumpets, drums, tambourines, cannon booms, all by himself. Which doesn't seem humanly possible, right? I mean, unless he's like the original beatboxer. (laughs) And another thing is that when Jesse would play, sometimes he would go into a trance-like state where he could speak multiple languages, when in fact he was only fluent in English and French. But during one of his seances, people were able to hear him speak Dutch, Sudanese, and Mandarin Chinese, and people in the audience spoke those and were able to say like, no, those were actually words. And he said it's because of the spirits that he he was channeling. But soon his creative outlet changed. At the age of 41, Jesse Shepard decided to leave music behind. What he wanted to focus on instead was writing. He knew that he couldn't be taken serious As an author, if everyone thought of him only as the mystical music man, so he used a pen name of Francis Grierson. Francis was one of his middle names, as we know, like one of the five. And Grierson was his mother's maiden name. And now, let's be honest, a lot of people knew he was both people, but they let him flourish anyway, because again, he just was, he just had that way with people, which... Reminds me of Garth Brooks when he became Chris Gaines. Yes. Like, totally, like, okay, okay, Chris Gaines. Uh Uh-huh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Okay. But one of Jesse's books, The Valley of the Shadows, is basically his literary masterpiece. And what makes him so renowned today, you know, Francis Grierson. And sadly, Jesse Shepard was kind of forgotten and, you know... That's just so sad because, again, like that guy that I did who was part of, like, basically NASA, but he was into spiritualism and stuff, and they kind of just, like, outed him. Like, you don't read about him because of his beliefs. Right. And so it's like, oh, he's this great author, but, like, don't talk about his other part, you know? Mm -hmm. But we know, like, Mark Twain, and we know him as... Well, I don't, I can't think of his other name right now, but we know all about his life and everything. I don't know. It's just, again, I don't, I don't know. Well, I'm going to skip down to where in 1920, Jesse and Lawrence moved to Los Angeles. And that's where Jesse spent his last days. On May 29th, 1927, Jesse was performing at a benefit dinner. And, you know, he was an expressive person. And so his Performances were grand and everything. So that last note was played, and Jesse just sat there. His head was bowed, and everyone's like, oh, okay. Dramatic pause, like, okay, clap, clap, clap. But like, what's he going to do next? But Lawrence knew different. Lawrence went to check on him, and Jesse had passed away as soon as he had keyed his last note of his last song. What the hell? Right? So a lot of people speculate, you know, what if he made a deal with something supernatural and that was like, that was his time. You can play so many notes and that was the last note. So yes, spiritualism is in my realm to talk about, but the house 
that he lived in, the Villa Montezuma, is what helped me find Jesse's story. Because again, he's pretty much just like, shoot underneath the rug. Even Wikipedia, it was under France's. So the house was Queen Anne and Victorian architecture. Two stories with a partial basement. Oh, you know, and gargoyles. I mean, as one has, mm-hmm. always. Mm-hmm. On the south side was a tower room that was Jesse's study and office where he would write. Had panoramic view of San Diego and is complete in eclectic style with a dome roof. The house was lavishly decorated with the best woods, Turkish, and Persian rugs. The wallpaper was amazing. It had like metallic silvery finish to it. The house had lots of stained glass windows. In total, there were five fireplaces, which are said to have some concealed spaces that he hid, you know, buried treasure and all of that. There's rumors of secret passages all throughout the house. And on the second floor, it's basically an art gallery and shit. Just think of lavish, over-the-top, spiritualism, musical man, and that is Jesse's house he shared with Lawrence. Sam Hyatt, nephew to the Hybros, he said Jesse was a charlatan who tricked his uncles out of a lot of money. So he said that when they gave him that property, because like the house they sold to him later for like $10,000. Okay, we I just told you all it had. We definitely know that even back in the day, it was more than $10,000. Like, a Turkish and Persian rug is more than that. Like, he would have to sell his 3,000 squirrel coat to afford this, okay? Mm -hmm. But who knows? However, if it is true, maybe that's why the house has a history of owners that have all faced financial hardship or have all, like, mysteriously had to leave really quickly. David Dare was the next owner, and he was the VP of a California national bank. And really soon after purchasing the house, he was forced to be on the lam because the police were looking for him. It's real sketch. I think he was basically a con man, but his business partner sadly died by suicide. But before he did, he apparently accused Dare of being on the take of the firm. And so that looked real bad for David and so he left. Then, like, it went through a few more little, like, quick things. And then Dr. George Kalmus got it. But he went bankrupt and deserted his wife at the same time, leaving her with the unpaid mortgage on the house. So from there, it was rented to a few people. And they actually did seances and shit because they were into spiritualism and the history of the house. Then in 1948, there was this guy named Edward Campbell, and he actually purchased it in order to find the buried treasure, because that was all, you know, again, just looking at Jesse, and if you hear one little story, you know, it's like, oh no, like, I mean, he has fucking that decadent lifestyle, and then this quirky, over-the-top house. It's like, oh no, I could see someone burying treasure up in that house. 
with the secret passages and all of that, like, I understand. Kind of like on S-Town with the alleged buried treasure yes. and the mazes and stuff. Yes. Oh, my God. That's exactly who Jesse was. Yeah. Holy shit. Maybe that's why I'm so, like, drawn to Jesse right now. Because I really, really loved S-Town. Yeah, that was a really good podcast. If y'all haven't listened to that one, you really should go listen. Yes. I mean, finish this one first, but then go listen. <laughs> so, getting back to the owners of the house, before I cry about S-Town, because whew, it said that the last owners were the Jaegers. The husband was a retired engineer. The wife was a former silent film actress. So, this is sad, but Mr. Jaeger, he died in 1958, and the house was not in the best shape. His wife took his death really hard and didn't really do any upkeep on the house. So, it was bad on top of bad. And then, along with the house, her mental health began to deteriorate. She probably honestly had Alzheimer's. Because people would see her standing outside of the house, and as they would pass by, she would ask them where her husband was. No. And sometimes people would see her carrying a gun, you know, kind of threatening people, like, tell me where he is. I know you know where he is. However, in 1968, someone came, and he was of like a fucking con man, and talked her into selling the house for, like, pennies on a dollar, you know? And she agreed. But luckily, her relatives contested the sale. And so, after that, she went to a home, and the house was purchased by the San Diego Historical Society. And they still own it and restored it back to its former glory and offer tours. The locals called the Villa Montezuma Spook House because of all the odd happenings. And there's a spot in the garden that nothing can grow in. Like, even the dirt's not good. Like, right after they water it, it looks dehydrated or whatever the terminology is. Also, in that same corner of the property, but in the house, the same thing happens with plants and stuff. Nothing can stay alive in that corner of the house, the property, nothing. And no one can understand what causes that. Like I mentioned, the house has several stained glass windows. Well, there's one of Peter Paul Rubens, and he had a beard. And people say that his beard starts to gray. And I'm like, well, that could be dust or like fading over time. Mm-hmm. But people say that it can change on a dime. Like you look at it and it looks new. Then you look at it again and he looks like he's aged centuries. So that's not dust. There's one more spirit other than Jesse that supposedly haunts the villa. And it's of a servant who died by suicide by hanging in the tower. The story goes is that his wife or the love of his life died and he couldn't live without her. Some say they can see a figure hanging in the tower. Others say they see a sad figure that they believe to be this man in the window of the tower. But no one can really like pinpoint historically like if that happened or not. Occasionally, you know, you can hear pianos playing 
in the middle of the night. You can hear it from locked rooms when you're inside and no one's in there. And this is kind of like on the Green Mile when the mouse on the mile, there's this cat with blue eyes, has extra toes, and it just appeared on the property. Well, the caretakers named her Psyche, but she was on the property through a fire that happened. She survived and she lived so long and they're like, wait, how old is this cat? Because she wasn't a kitten when she arrived and she was just there and she never left until one day she did, but it was way longer than normal for a cat to live, they say. On weirdca.com, there were some people who left comments on an article about the Villa Montezuma And one was this woman who said that her hubby was a member of the HABS team, which I guess is like the historical society. And they lived there in the summer of 1970. And their bedroom was on the second floor. And the bed was at the base of that staircase to the tower. She would hear footsteps at night on the stairs when she knew no one was up and Definitely no one was walking around. On that same website, Joe Gutierrez, he wrote that in October of 2004, him and his wife went on a Halloween tour of Old Town San Diego. They toured the villa, and when they were walking through the music room, he fell behind a bit, just got preoccupied taking everything in, because there's a lot of stained glass in there. And on the way out, he heard piano music. He didn't think anything of it. But two days later, they were talking to their friends about their trip. And he was like, oh, my God, they even play piano music. And his wife looked at him funny and was like, "Uh, no, they don't. So in true Donna and Carrie fashion, they called and asked, do you play piano (laughs) music or not? (laughs) And they said no. So he got a private little concert from Jesse that day. Wow. Yeah. And I'd like to think that it's Jesse thanking him for enjoying the stained glass because it was all the composers and stuff. Yeah. So like how Jesse enjoyed them and like, you know, he just kind of, he just kind of lollygagged there, like looking at them and then he got that. But yeah, when I read that they called, I was like, that is so me and Carrie. Another commenter named Jen said that her and her dad went one time when there was this ghost and gravestones tour And they were standing in one of the rooms and a rocking chair in the corner started to slowly rock back and forth. And none of them were close enough to have done anything. And when all of them noticed it, it abruptly stopped. Like the person just got up and walked away. Well, the Villa Montezuma Museum, they always get the question, is it haunted? And they always say, no, it's not haunted, but it's enchanted. I'm like, God, that really describes Jesse to me. He was enchanting. And so I really hope y'all like this story and learning about him. 48 hours really would describe him and say he lit up a room when he walked in. Yes, yes. And they wouldn't be lying. They really wouldn't, especially when he had the neon orange, like, Mad Hatter looking stash going on. When he styled a stash. Uh-huh. Same with your lady with her bright red hair. She's so fucking clever. 
Right? Especially because people would be like, I would have remembered her, though, because of her hair. But no, no, no. She changed it like that. Because most people try to do it to fit in. Like that guy in that fucking bonus episode that you did on Patreon. I can't even think of his name, but it was like the worst fake name ever. And he just dyed his hair black. Do you know who I'm talking about? Yes, but I can't remember either. Um, It was like Trevor Chad. Like, not like it was two first names. I swear to God, he put it in a randomizer and just came up with that. And he was like, I'm going to dye my hair black. And the police will never know it's me. And I'm just going to live my life with my girlfriend when I'm supposed to be dead or gone or whatever. But he tried to fit in. Your girl was like, no, no, no. I'm going to stand out. And both of them had that, just that something that, that drive in them and that attracted people to them and just like made them open up and everything. They had that je ne sais quoi. <laughs> yeah. We certainly don't recommend being a freaking vigilante. Right. I mean, it does make a good story and it does make a good movie, Batman. Well, I thought you were meaning taken. Well, attacking. Attacking too, but... uh, (laughs) Oh, my God. Put attacking that, because we don't want you getting arrested. No. And, I mean, like, the Punisher. I mean, all the super, you know, hero movie things. But real life, it's not not safe. And it's against the law. Right. But she did the best she could when the law couldn't do anything. Yeah. Well, when the law was against her, too, you don't know who to trust. You don't know... Anything. Uh Uh-huh. I liked your story, though. Thanks. It was, I feel like it was a lighter kind of story. We've had some heavy weeks, so it's good. Yeah. We hope that y'all are having as happy of a Pride Month as you can. Still quasi in a pandemic. There is a spinoff group on Facebook called APC LGBTQIA Plus and Allies. So if you want to join that group, feel free to join it. So thank you so much, Wynema, for starting that a while back. Um, it's been around for, a, for I don't know, at least minimum a year. So yeah, thank you all so much for being a part of that and supporting all of our friends who are in the LGBTQIA community. So thank you for supporting us as well. And remember, creep it real and, and don't, don't get scared. scared.